some people love Shakespeare, others not so much. But a Shakespeare adaptation is always a good time. Constellation Theatre at 14th and T is featuring a musical called Desperate Measures. It's based off of Shakespeare's play Measure for Measure, but it's set in the Wild West. A gunslinging nun teams up with a sheriff and a saloon dancer to save her brother. Buy tickets now at constellationtheater.org. The show runs through March 17th. Once again, that's constellationtheater.org. Today on CityCast DC, it's the last day of Spy Week, which is presented by the International Spy Museum. And we are going to talk secret spy meetup spots. Plus, the district may not have a senator, but there is a race next year in Maryland, just across the line, that might feature at least three DMV figures, and it has some major implications about race, ideology, and public safety. Meanwhile, there are some weird reverberations from a race that took place in D.C. last year and matter a lot more than your average at-large D.C. council race. CityCast contributor Dan Reed and audio producer Julia Karen are here with me. Today is May 12th. I'm Michael Schaefer, and here's what D.C. is talking about. Dan, Julia, how's it going? Pretty good. Chillin'. So, Dan, you are a uh, Maryland resident. I've been told, yes. <laughs> That's right. I live in Montgomery County in Silver Spring. Not Prince George's, but very, very close. Extremely close. Uh, so, the county executive of Prince George's County, Angela Alsobrooks, has thrown her hat into the Senate race for the open Maryland Senate seat uh, next year. Prince George's is a county of a million people. It's bigger than D.C., uh, she is the county executive, meaning she is the, you know, effectively the mayor of the county and has an interesting background. I think that's going to make the race really interesting. They're already talking about Jamie Raskin, the the congressman. I think he's I think he may be your congressman, in fact. That's right. Uh, from uh, Tacoma Park and Environs and uh, David Trone uh, also running. So tell me about Angela also Brooks and the sort of state of play and what this all means. Yeah. So this is it's a big deal. Ben Cardin, who is the senior senator from Maryland, announced that he's stepping down. And so there is, you know, everybody and their mother is jumping in to replace him. And just this week, you know, Angela Alsobrooks announced she would only be the third black woman in U.S. history to serve in the Senate. That's uh, nuts. It's uh, it's America, right? <laughs> <laughs> She's been considered a rising star in the Democratic Party in Maryland since she uh, was elected in 2018 as county executive. Before that, she was a Prince George's state's attorney, and she has linked her approach to being state's attorney to Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, who also endorsed her when she ran for county executive. Uh, this is also a big deal because Maryland itself hasn't had any women in its congressional de delegation for over five years uh, since former Senator Mikulski retired and when Donna Edwards left office after running to fill Barbara Mikulski's seat. So the biographical data point that seems like interesting to me, given the politics of this moment, is that she was a prosecutor, a pretty effective one by reputation. There had been sort of conventional wisdom that in the Democratic Party as currently constituted, being a prosecutor, putting people behind bars is not an advantage to you when you are seeking other office. Uh, it, it didn't stop her, though. Uh, it didn't stop her in Prince George's County, a very large, predominantly black county. 
How do you think that plays into the calculations? You know, it's interesting. I think her approach made a lot of sense in Prince George's County, where I think many residents are rightly concerned about crime, but also aren't totally interested in the whole uh, defund the police approach that has been sort of uh, popular in progressive circles over the past several years. And while I think a lot of progressives used Kamala Harris's you know, history as a prosecutor against her when she was running for vice president, it clearly didn't stop her <laughs> uh, right. from getting support among voters, particularly black voters, particularly black female voters. And I think we'll probably see the same thing in Maryland. You know, Maryland has one of the largest black populations in the country. It has the two wealthiest majority black jurisdictions in the nation, Prince George's County and Charles County. In some ways, I actually think it might be a benefit for her. Right. And that stuff plays better in like college towns than in like the cul-de-sacs of uh, Fort Washington. Right. Uh, in as much as you could call College Park a college town. And <laughs> as a former Terp, I, I may contest that. <laughs> so I so my big question about this is like, one, is she like clear in a way the front runner right now for this seat? And also, who do we think is going to play well with Chris Van Hollen, who I imagine is not going to give up his Senate seat for the next God knows how many years? <laughs> So some of the other folks running include um, Montgomery County Councilmember Will Jawando, who serves the whole county. He's been in office since 18, and he will probably run on the left in this race. Uh, you also have David Trone, who's currently a congressman from District 6, which is like Montgomery County in Western Maryland. Mm. He's also famously the owner of Total Wine and More. Love that place. And <laughs> what's, what's the more? It, sometimes you can buy liquor, yeah. okay. but not all of them. Okay. And his announcement that he's going to run for Senate has set off its own sort of like scramble to run for his seat. Me personally, and I'm saying this not just because he's my congressman, this feels like Jamie Raskin's race to lose. He has the highest profile both in Maryland and nationally. I mean, he was on the January 6th committee. Mm. He's gotten a lot of attention uh, for his recent cancer diagnosis and then beating cancer. He said he's going to take the next month to rest and decide whether he's going to run or not. But he's the one I think everybody's watching. Longtime champion of D.C. statehood. He mm -hmm. is. Just a nice guy. One of the other things of Maryland politics was always that, like, that one of the divides was within the Democrats of Maryland was like the Baltimore crew against the like D.C. suburbs crew. I hear a lot of D.C. names or D.C. area names being thrown around. What about that divide? Is there anybody stepping up to represent Baltimore. I mean, Van Hollen, the other senator, was a Montgomery County congressman and local politician before that, too. I haven't heard anybody from the Baltimore area announcing they're going to run. It is likely that somebody will. You know, that has been like the historical divide in Maryland politics. But, you know, increasingly, as the D.C. suburbs have more people in them, we've started to see that political shift further and further south. You know, it wasn't that long ago that Martin O'Malley, who grew up in Rockville, like, emphasized his Baltimore connections and history when he ran for governor, and that was successful, right? But it is perhaps a real possibility that both Maryland senators, for the first time that I can remember at least, will be from the D.C. area. How does that reflect some of the opinions about people in the rest of the state? Like, do they feel like they will be represented if they're just like, oh, we have these two Montgomery County dudes potentially who are going to represent us if Raskin runs? And again, like, this is a big if. The Panhandle and the Shore have always felt, I think, a little slighted uh, from the rest of the state. You know, Governor Hogan used that to his advantage when he ran and got elected twice. I'm not sure. You know, the fact of the matter is most of the people in the state live in the middle part. 
and one out of six voters lives in Montgomery County. You know, Governor Hogan got more votes in Montgomery County than all of the Eastern Shore counties combined. So <laughs> this is our time. What can I say? Yeah, it used to also be that members of Congress from the D.C. suburbs were like vociferous, often critics of the D.C. government when it, Congress decided it wanted to be beating up on D.C. or opponents of statehood because they were worried that their constituents would be subject to commuter taxes and so on. That has changed. That has uh, entirely changed. So the uh, like ascent of D.C. suburb politicians within Maryland maybe doesn't make that much difference anymore for those of us who live here. But is there other ways that this race would affect folks who actually live in the district? Well, like you said, you know, Jamie Raskin's been a real champion for D.C. statehood. So I think if anything, it might bring the two closer together. I think that relationship actually could be pretty good. The brand new Arbor at Tacoma is built for your most convenient urban living. Whether you want to enjoy the vibrant Tacoma, D.C. community or comfortably retreat into a sleek sanctuary all your own. The kitchens have striking dark navy and white cabinets, and throughout the home, there are wood floors and smart home technology. Some homes even have a private outdoor space. With a quick walk to the metro, you can easily head into downtown or stay close and enjoy the retail that's on-site. Located at 218 Cedar Street Northwest, the Arbor Tacoma offers brand new one- and two-bedroom condos starting in the upper 300,000s. Visit thearborattacoma.com for more information. That's Tacoma with a K. So T-H-E-A-R-B-O-R-A-T-T-A-K-O-M-A dot com. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. All right, so moving from like a big race of like national import to a very small year-old race of strictly local uh, impact. Uh, there was one of the weirder editorials I've ever seen in the Post that ran at the end of last week. And it concerned Alyssa Silverman, who had been a member of the DC Council, an at-large member, and who lost her bid for re-election narrowly. Alyssa Silverman, who you know, I, I worked with years ago, she had been one of the sort of the leader, uh, intellectual leader of the kind of uh, progressive bloc within the council. And was excoriated by the Post's editorial board shortly before Election Day, based on a report from the D.C. Office of Campaign Finance that uh, said she had broken the law by uh, using public campaign money to commission a poll of Ward 3 that she then used in order to help a progressive candidate in Ward 3 uh, win or to, you know, convince other progressive candidates who might have siphoned votes uh, to leave the race, which facilitated this victory. The uh, Office of Campaign Finance initially ruled this was a no-no, that you're only supposed to use that public money for yourself. Silverman said, well, I was uh, commissioning that poll because I, you know, as a running at large, running citywide, I kind of need to know what's going on in all the wards. And she eventually won on appeal. 
And that was too late. She had lost her re-election. She had lost her re-election in the wake of a very harsh post-editorial, you know, taking her to task for these ethical alleged lapses. And she now thinks, understandably, that the uh, editorial cost her the election. The Post ran a subsequent editorial uh, last week that said, you know, it didn't really cop to costing her the election, but it did say, like, our editorial was wrong and the Office of Campaign Finance was wrong and maybe they should think about like having a, a dark period before election day where they're not going to issue any reports that could sway the election because after all, these things are subject to appeal. So my big question about this is like, when is something like this, like a nothing burger, like in Alyssa Silverman's case where she's like ostensibly trying to get this polling info because she's running at large? And when does it rise to something that's like, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying hard enough to win. Like, where do you guys think that line is? Maybe we should give some more context as to, like, why she did what she did, right? right. Last spring in the Ward 3 election, there was you know, the perceived frontrunner was a guy named Eric Goulet, who ran on this fairly conservative, tough-on-crime platform. He said some pretty wild and racist things. The week before the primary, all of his opponents basically like dropped out and consolidated behind Matt Fruman, who right. ultimately won. And the reason they did that is because of a poll that Alyssa Silverman paid for saying that he was the most likely person to beat Eric Goulet. There was a real, I think, sense of, of danger around that, right? The Post editorial board at the time endorsed Eric Goulet. So I think that's sort of in the background here too, right? Like naturally they might feel critical of Alyssa Silverman for blocking them. And for a long time, I mean, they had had been critics of her for a very long time. She, again, has uh, advocated a more progressive set of policies than they did. So there was no love lost there anyway. You know, what's interesting here, like besides the, the like, did they effectively sway an election um, and should they have, you know, should either the Office of Campaign Finance report primarily and then the reporters reacting and publicizing their ruling secondarily have behaved differently so as not to victimize someone who ultimately appealed successfully. One of the things that I thought is, you know, in the context of DC politics is for years, it was it was thought that particularly up in like Ward 3, the assumption was the Washington Post editorial page can really decide an election. And it's one of the weird things of DC politics that like, it, because of the nature of transients in Washington, some of the low information voters in DC are often some of the like best educated, richest, most eager news consumers in DC. You know, they can tell you like who won the Iowa caucuses in 1972, but they can't tell you who they're a member of the DC council is. And so they uh, would lean on the Post's editorial at the last minute. And the assumption had been that in the same way that editorial boards everywhere just less matter less than they used to, that that tendency was going away. But I think in this case, it, it showed there's there's still some mighty strong juice there. For sure. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm thinking about when I'm, I'm reading this opinion piece is like they're considering a blackout period. Is this the way to solve potentially this issue so they don't have to write this mea culpa <laughs> If, it, if we can call it a mea culpa, to Alyssa Silverman. Some of the other places that have like a blackout period-ish are like Massachusetts. They restrict the state's Office of Campaign and Political Finance from referring to election finance allegations to the state attorney general within 120 days of an election. 
New York has a similar rule, but like places like California are like, no, like you should be reporting this stuff. So again, I think my, my question about like, when does it rise to the level of like, this is important and the people need to know become a factor in, in reporting it and is it enough to sway an election? So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the October surprises. Right. It, it's powerful, right? I mean, the first thing I think of is uh, what happened with Hillary Clinton in 2016, right? All the, the emails, like that kind of was a nothing burger. And it also may have had a huge impact on the race. Right. And the other context thing, and I guess it's related to that, is, is you know, DC politics for, I don't know, 20 years or, or so has been like the... You know, it's kind of ideologically, it's everything is between the 40 yard lines, right? There hasn't been these great divides. But if you look at like their Twitter, uh, like the Twitter world of this very small number of uh, city politics people, it is nasty, nasty stuff. And like Eric Goulet, who you mentioned, who'd lost the Ward 3 race, but is a, a school board member, you know, has very, very sharp uh, elbowed presence. So this thing where like maybe it was a, you know, earnest but wrong ruling. It sparked an earnest editorial that was overtaken by events and nobody meant ill. But we're suddenly in a moment where I think a lot of people don't grant one another the benefit of the doubt or the assumption of good faith. And that is like a, a change in the city political context uh, that I think is going to be with us and, and be relevant on a whole bunch of issues that have nothing to do with this. Hey, not just in the city too, you know, uh, Montgomery County Twitter is pretty, pretty awful. And I say that as someone who's you know, pretty active in Montgomery County Twitter. It's a good reminder that social media is bad and we should use it less. <laughs> All right. Speaking of people who don't use social media, um, it is, it's been spy week, if, if everyone's noticed. We've done a bunch of episodes about spying. And uh, one of the things that has jumped up to all of us, I think, is where these people meet. You know, it's like, hey, look, a famous, you know, spy exchange happened on my corner or, or someone was arrested or so on. Um, but we know DC pretty well here at CityCast. Julia, if you were a secret agent here, talk to me about your spots you would pick. Who's to say I'm not one right now and I'd be giving it all away? Bum, bum, bum. Right. OK, so so here is is what we have learned uh, from our esteemed guests and colleagues. The spy museum's Andrew Hammond, as he mentioned in the restaurants episode, says, you know, you want it to look like a normal place that you'd meet. So like a park, a restaurant, somewhere where like normal activity happens. Lindsay Moran and How to Spot a Spy said, you know, it's got to be a place where you can like strike up a conversation and then get the person to continue talking to you uh, for probably longer than they'd want to. And if you're Bob Wallace, his only recommendation is maybe not the Mayflower Hotel, even though it's convenient to everything. But I think it's pretty <laughs> obvious right now. Like, that's probably a no-go. So I have a couple of ideas for spots. One of my ideas would be any politics and prose location. DC is, and here's why, DC is a very nerdy city. And people go into bookstores there all the time. It's a really normal activity. It's really easy to strike up a conversation with anybody about a book that they're reading. You can, like, fake it till you make it. And also because the book selections change, your dead drops can be like changing locations constantly, which I think is a lot of fun. And because there's multiple locations, like you could go to the one at the wharf, you could go to the one at Union Market, you can go to the one in Chevy Chase and be like poking around and throwing people off. You can have like a rotating area. Uh, the other place, and I think this might be a little further away and maybe not allowed given the circumference is Fort DuPont Ice Arena because one, like there's a lot of people in politics and journalists who actually end up playing ice hockey or going to rinks 
at like 9 p.m. at night for for beer league. And it's a normal ish activity. It is very far removed, though. But there is uh, Fort DuPont right around the corner for a park if you need to, like, escape. But I think the politics and pros one is is the best bet. Dan, what are your thoughts and feelings? So maybe this makes me be a makes makes me a bad spy, but my my preferred spot would be the uh, underpass beneath the Southeast Freeway at Eighth Street near Barracks Row. There's a great parking lot there. There are some park people who park there, but it often has an empty space. It's one of my favorite places to park in DC, and you know it's it's just secluded enough, but also a great place to park. What can I say? <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I think Julia is onto something with the bookstore because the the idea is like a place where you don't look uh, conspicuous, like hanging around. You know, a lot of people who would be working spies, right? Like uh, their cover is like, I'm a diplomat at a foreign embassy or something. It's like, really? You're going to be hanging out under an underpass parking lot? You don't uh, know what I do. That's true. <laughs> that's true. I thought... Uh, I, like, I didn't even get the restaurants thing. I thought like they should meet at the food court, you know, at the, at the mall. Like that's, um, I mean, I think the, the point is not to be James Bond. It's to be like the, the gray person who fades into the, uh, to the backdrop. Okay. I have another idea. The Ronald Reagan building cafeteria during like the busiest tourist season. Oh no. Like just completely disappear <laughs> amongst groups of eighth graders in matching hoodies. Perfect. If you're an eighth grader, it's perfect. Well, if you're an eighth, if you look like an eighth grader, or you got to pull off like being a teacher or being like a school mom or something, and like figuring out like how close do you walk to these kids and not be creepy, but also kind of like have an air of like don't f with me, you know? Uh, Spy Kids Week, I suppose. <laughs> I always thought like this was my uh, scheme that you know in a city like Washington where people are obsessed with real estate and scared about real estate. You figure out some way to meet at an open house. Yes. And that way, and you know, those things are, are advertised only at the last minute, um, you know, because the, the, the deal could go through. So you don't know until like the morning of which open house you'll be at. And that gives you an excuse to be there and to pass through and linger. And, and maybe you're like, you know, interested in the walk-in closets. And this other person who happens to be shopping is also interested in them. And who knows? Got to pick the right one, though. Like you pick a bad open house, you're the only person in there. Like you're done. You got to get like a really crowded open house, like a really hot neighborhood. Well, that's assuming the real estate agent is a narc. <laughs> but we're talking like selling sunset level where it's like a party and people are like looking at this beautiful vista, which like, I don't know, like maybe in D.C. there is a flavor of that in the real estate market. But right. you tell me. All right. So now we've got a tip of the day from our sponsors at the Spy Museum. The tip is definitely save some time for the Berlin exhibit near the end of your journey through the museum. The best part, you can interrogate your friends and family and perhaps even give them a little light, friendly shock if they betray you. So it's like your own real life Milgram experiment. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> that's uh, that's all for today here on CityCast DC. Thank you guys very much. Uh, Dan Reed, always awesome to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Julia, thank you. Thanks, Mike. Our lead producer is Brianka Tilvey. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote Stemmerman. Our production assistant is Susanna Brown. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, interrogate your friends until they agree to subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>